Thank you, Lewis. If you notice the title of the message, if you read that in the bulletin, the importance of remembering. And if you put that together with my age, you might have thought that today's study has to do with entering a room and forgetting why you came in. I've, I've heard that that can happen to some people. If it's happened to me, I don't remember it. Um, but uh, I really had a great title for this morning's study. Very clever title. Very striking. Very memorable. And uh, I know it'll come back to me. I used to have a, used to, just a little fun, I used to have a cartoon on my, on my office that had a picture of a man walking in the woods at 11.30 on a Sunday morning. And it was entitled, The Absent-Minded Pastor. And there was this thought bubble above his head that he looked quizzically and said, wait a minute. And it was just one of those, one of those uh, fun things. Lots of jokes, lots of funny things, lots of uh, interesting things can be said about memory and remembrance. But here's the situation in Second Peter. What Peter is talking about, this kind of remembering, has nothing to do with why did I walk in this room or did I remember to take my meds. This kind of remembering has nothing to do with forgetting anything. This kind of remembering has to do with bringing back into focus what you already know but may have allowed to recede into the background of your mind but need to bring that into the foreground because of its importance as you walk with the Lord and as you're challenged in your walk with the Lord. Something that you need that is vital to equip you for dealing with life, for dealing with false teaching, whether it's in the first century or the 21st century. Second Peter warns against false teaching quite a bit. That's really the bulk of what the book is about. What are, what are uh, t- uh, today's heresies? Well, they're almost innumerable. There's a lot of false teaching out there, and there always has been. Uh, recently, though, there's, in our cultural moment, there was a study uh, done by some sociologists in uh, 2005, and they put a label on the belief system or non-system uh, of uh, many Americans. This was for American, uh, mostly teenagers, and it's, it, they called it moralistic therapeutic deism. That was the term moralistic therapeutic deism, or if you prefer the more contemporary term, spirituality. And you could distill its creed into six points. First, I believe that God created, regulated, and watches over the world. That's good. So far, so good. I believe God wants us to be nice and fair to each other. Absolutely. That's good. I believe that the central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about yourself. Well, no. I believe that God makes no personal demands on your life and does not judge. I believe that God does not intrude into your life unless you need help in a crisis. And the last one, I believe good people go to heaven when they die. Well, that's pretty much the belief system of our culture, many of whom claim to be Christians, But this is not the God of the Bible. This is the God of Santa Claus or 
This is the God who's a celestial grandpa. This is not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is not the God of Jesus. This is not the, uh, uh, the God of Paul. This is not the God of Peter. Uh, this is not the father of Jesus, I should have said. But this is the default religion of a wealthy, self-indulgent culture that knows little about suffering, that knows little about what he taught in 1 Peter. This is the kind of spiritual slumber that Peter is warning us about. And yet we face in these days, in our culture, right now, even this week, we face a wonderful opportunity in these days of pandemic, coupled with political turmoil and racial unrest, Moralistic therapeutic deism or spirituality or whatever you want to call it has been exposed, like the Platte River in Nebraska as being a mile wide and an inch deep. It's shallow. There's nothing to it. But we have truth that fits real life. It's deep. It's true. It works. Over the next couple of Sundays, we're going to finish the first chapter in Second Peter and if you read ahead, you're going to notice in chapters 2 and 3 that, that uh, Peter warns against false teaching quite a bit. Be on your guard. Be on your guard. But first, first, they have to be stirred up and stirred out of their spiritual lethargy that diminishes the reality of the battle that we're in. They need to know truth, and they need to be equipped against false teaching. And here's one more thing. Peter loves them. And he knows that he's about to die. So this letter is, in reality, his last will and testament, his legacy. So he says over and over and over again, remember, remember, remember. Now, since verse 12 in our passage, in, first, in 2 Peter chapter 1, since verse 12 begins with the word therefore, to make sense of where we're going, we need to make sense of where we've been. So just to remind you of where we have been, in verses 1 through 4, Peter says that God has called them, that is called us, by His grace, and has provided everything that we need for life and godliness. And he lists these things, <clears throat> faith, grace, peace, knowledge, His precious promises, and His enablement for spiritual growth and maturity. Now in verses 5 through 7, he offers a list of godly virtues that we are called to pursue. And he lists those as well. Faith, moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. All of which are qualities that the Holy Spirit produces within us. Now if you think about it, that is just a list of everything that you do want to become. But in verses 8 through 11, he says, if the listed, these virtues that he lists, if these things are increasing, which means that you are growing spiritually in them, they will help you avoid everything that you don't want to become. So, what are those things that you don't want to become? He mentions what they are as well. Useless, unfruitful, ignorant, blind, short-sighted, forgetful of what God has done. So he lists all the things that you do want to be, and he lists all the things that you don't want to be. And he says in verse 10, as long as you practice the things that you do want to be, you'll never stumble. But that warning assumes that it is 
possible to stop practicing those things. And it is possible that we can stumble in our walk with Christ. So Peter's laid this out, and he wants us to remember, remember, remember. Last week, Lewis mentioned that Peter is preempting some serious errors. One of those errors is this, that God saves you and then pretty much leaves you alone. When you die, you arrive at heaven's gate, and somebody asks you, excuse me, did you get your fire insurance policy when you went forward that time? Because that's, of course, your ticket into heaven, right? No, that's not redemption. That's not genuine salvation. Ephesians 2.10, after saying that we are not saved by works, but by grace through faith, Paul says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. So Peter says this, and Paul says this, and I would add the author of Hebrews says this. In Hebrews 11, the faith chapter, almost every verse beginning with the term by faith, what you have after that opening term in almost every verse is by faith, so-and-so did this, and they did that, and they did this, and the other. In other words, they were engaged in putting their faith into practice. So these qualities that God has born within us are to bear fruit to be fruitful and useful, putting the gospel into practice. If I were to give a title to Hebrews 11, the faith chapter, it would be this. Faith works. Faith does stuff. We were made to become conformed to the image of Jesus, the Son of God. We weren't made to be saved, and that's it. Salvation is not the end. It's the beginning of our growth into the image of Jesus Christ. Now, these are foundational biblical truths that Peter wants to nail down. He wants them to remember certain things because they'll provide stability, not only for when testing comes through trials and persecution, but also when false teaching shows up on your doorstep, or God forbid, even in our church, because that can happen, and it will happen. So, my brother and sister, are you going to be vigilant? Will you remember the truth? So this passage is all about being reminded. Do we need reminders? Do you? I, I sure do. I read an article this week where the question was, how long does it take to teach Johnny to make his bed? And the answer was 20 years. <laughs> what, what, parent, what parent has not said, how many times do I have to tell you when the answer is obvious, at least one more, right? So why do we assume that just because we have more age on us and uh, perhaps more spiritual maturity, we don't need the reminders? We're, we're more likely to remember. Because when you look at the pattern of truth unfolded in the Bible, you know what the Bible does? The Bible repeats itself a lot. Why? Because we're thick. The Ten Commandments are in Exodus 20. They're repeated in Deuteronomy 5. Some psalms repeat parts of other psalms. Jesus repeats parables and stories in different contexts to different audiences. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says this, to write the same things, again, is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Even the Lord's Supper, we are to repeat the Lord's Supper. 
Why? So that we remember him until he comes. So all of that is preliminary to diving into these verses. We've talked about the context and what they're about. The outline of these verses of this passage is really quite simple, and it's from the text. If you look at the word remind or remembrance or remember, in verse 12, Peter is ready to remind them. In verses 13 and 14, Peter says he is right to remind them. In verse 15, Peter is diligent to remind them. Each point from the text, each point has its own emphasis. And, 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 and just take into account that Peter is not talking about new revelation. He's not telling them things they haven't known, known before. You can teach people new truth. You teach them new truth. But you can't remind them of new truth. You can only remind them of what they've already known. So in verse 12, he says, Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things. All those things that he's talked about in verses 3 through 11. Even though you already know them, it's really clear about that, you know these things, and have been established in the truth which is present with you. So they already know these things. They already agree that they are true. They're already committed to them as being true, yet they need to be reminded. And I want to park here for just a moment because this is where we find ourselves. Do you see the word established? You've been established in the truth. This, this is sometimes translated strengthened. And the reason I mention that alternative translation is because it's the same word that's used by Jesus when he told Peter to strengthen your brothers. Listen to this. Just listen. Listen up on this. This is from Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and following. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. This is Peter. Sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And that's the word. What do you mean, turned again? When you've come, you're going to fail. <laughs> but when you come back, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. But you get what, Je what Jesus has said. After you fail, and you will, you come back, and you strengthen, establish your brothers. Now, please note, that is exactly what Peter is doing right here. That's the same idea. It's the same word. He is doing in 2 Peter exactly what Jesus told him to do. Now, in verse 13, he also refers to something as the truth, which we're going to get to in just a moment. But when, when he refers to it as the truth, what is he talking about? Definite article, the truth. He's talking about a body of revealed truth that is the doctrine to which we all assent. The book of Acts calls it the Apostles' Teaching. In Acts 2.42, they were continually devoting themselves to the Apostles' Teaching and to fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayer. Acts 4, the Apostles' Teaching. Acts 5, the Apostles' Teaching. In Romans 16, and, and by the way, on through the book, 
In Romans 16, verse 17, Paul says, I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned. And turn away from them. One of the most remarkable statements in all the New Testament is in Galatians 1, where Paul says, even if I were to say to you that which is contrary to the grace, the gospel of the grace of God which you have received, that which you had a body of truth, the apostles teaching, and he's one of the apostles. Even if I were to say to you something that contradicted that, I would be first. So this body of teaching is that important. In Jude 3, Jude writes, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly, listen, for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul refers to the doctrine that he had received from Jesus. So there's this body of truth to which we assent that we are to protect. And Peter talks about this. I'm going to ask you to to turn to chapter 3, verse 1, for just a moment. I want you to see it yourself. Chapter 3, verse 1, Peter says, This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of what? A reminder. So I'm reminding you in this second book, and I'm stirring you up. Same idea. Verse 2, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets. Those are the spokesmen for the Old Testament. And the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles, the spokesmen for the New Testament. So God's word. Jesus has promised, by the way, that the Spirit would speak through the apostles in John 14 and John 16 to produce his word. So this repeated teaching of this body of truth, this remembering of this body of truth, on which, which rests upon the foundation of the gospel, leads to spiritual strength when we're tested and when false teaching arises. And what I'm about to say has more to do with the rest of 2 Peter than it does with this chapter, but it's all of a piece. It's the other side of the same coin. When you declare something is true, you are also declaring and excluding what is false. Right? Sometimes people feel that declaring doctrine to actually believe something is universally true, to affirm this is true and therefore it's contradictory, is false. To affirm doctrine in that way is, well, rude because it doesn't accord with the spirit of our age. But according to Scripture, first of all, some teachings are worth fighting for. And second, if you look at Galatians, Colossians, 2 Peter, 3 John, Jude, some teachings are worth fighting against. We're going to see that unfold in the rest of the letter. It seems that people in our, our cultural moment of moralistic, therapeutic deism Uh, spirituality, are more concerned about love than about truth. Now, please don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. 
because we need to be concerned about both. But truth is the foundation for love. Doctrine divides. Just give me Jesus. Well, that sounds pious. But give me who? Jesus. Who is Jesus? Oh, then you start making doctrinal statements, affirming the identity of who Jesus is. You can't stay away from claiming the truth of doctrine if you open up the Bible. There's an old fable about an astronomer and a theologian that were talking, and the astronomer said, you know, I think all of theology can be reduced to this one statement, God is love. And the theologian said, yes, I agree, and I think all of astronomy can be reduced to this one statement, twinkle, twinkle, little star. No. I'm oversimplifying here, okay? But in Philippians, you have a case of truth without love. Paul says he could live with that. It's okay that these men are trying to cause him distress in his imprisonment. At least Christ is proclaimed. So he, it's not a good thing, but he can live with that. He didn't get exercised about that. He's pretty placid about it, actually. In Galatians, you have love without truth. You have false teaching that is distorting the gospel. And Paul could not live with that. Even though they loved Paul so much, he says, you would have torn out your very eyes for me. He says, I cannot believe you would consider abandoning the gospel of grace for a gospel mixed with works, which is not the gospel at all. And he uses the word accursed there. Because truth is foundational and love builds on that foundation. So you see this contrast in Philippians and, and Galatians. And of course, the ideal is found in Ephesians. Speak the truth and live the truth in love. It's not an either or, it's a both and. Now, that's a long but important digression explaining why Peter is so concerned about reminding them of the body of truth on which their faith rests with all the things that are coming up and the things that he's about to say. So he continues in verse 13, I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of a reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. I want you to notice three things from these two verses. There are a lot, there's a lot to unpack here. First of all, you see what Peter calls his body? A tent. That's what the word means. Not a house. It's a tent. An earthly dwelling. Different Greek word from house. Paul called, called his body the same thing. I'm living in this tent. So there's good consistency here among the apostles. Why? Because they knew what was, ahead, what was ahead. They knew where their house was. They knew where home was. As one person put it, a pilgrim views life differently from a resident. If you're staying in a hotel, you don't get attached to the furniture, to the pictures on the walls. You don't move in your own. But for us as believers, heaven is our permanent home. So first, Peter refers to this transitory life that he is moving through 
and heading towards the end, which we'll get to in a moment. Secondly, Peter says it is right, as long as he remains alive, to stir you up, to wake you up, to arouse you, to, actually the word sometimes, stab you awake, <laughs> means the same thing. It's, it's a word that, re- that refers to the kind of vigorous shaking that we need when we need it. And Peter, of all people, knows the need for that vigorous shaking to stab you awake, to nudge you awake at times. Years ago, Betsy and I were driving back from um, Pennsylvania, uh, White Sulphur Springs, where I'd been speaking for the Officers Christian Fellowship, which we've done all these years. Only this particular time, uh, the kids were little. They were in the back. Betsy was sitting in the passenger seat on the right. I was driving. She had fallen asleep. And we were driving along, and all of a sudden, I fell asleep. And she shook me awake because I was headed straight for a concrete overpass. You know, it's, it's, it's that kind of urgency that Peter is trying to get them to understand and to realize. He's trying to shake them awake because there is spiritual danger. In Matthew 16... Do you remember the story uh, where uh, Jesus said, who do people say that I am? And they, the response was, well, some people say that you're Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets returned. And Jesus said, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter was the one who answered. Peter said, you are the Christ, the Messiah the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, you nailed it, Peter. Blessed are you. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. Okay, you got that picture? Peter's unshakable, right? Three verses later. Three verses later. Peter says, no, no, Lord, you're not going to go, you're not going to die in Jerusalem. You're not going to... And Peter and Jesus says to Peter, get behind me. What's the next word? Satan. Peter had been shaken up. In fact, if you remember the time when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he asked the disciples who were with him, Peter, James, and John, to pray. Why? So that they would not enter into temptation. And they kept falling asleep. Happened three times. Jesus was the one who poked them awake. And he warned them against the temptation for spiritual compromise. Within hours, Peter had denied Jesus three times. Within hours. Now, what Peter is doing is he is all about believers being stirred up for truth. Because that's what Jesus did to him. He knows the absolute importance of it. Third, Peter says, in effect, in verse 14, that he's about to die. Laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus made clear to me. I want you to turn back with me to uh, uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 21, very last chapter, very last verses of the Gospel of John. Jesus has just been saying, To Peter, do you love me? Tend my lambs. 
Do you love me? Shepherd my sheep. Do you love me? Tend my sheep. And then he says this, and he's speaking to Peter in John 21, verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, and he's not there yet, when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, listen, he said to him, follow me. So this is what's going to happen to you, Peter. This is what's going to be your future years from now when you grow old. Now, follow me. So Peter, in following Jesus, is stirring up other believers so that they would understand the absolute importance and bedrock foundation of the gospel truth in times of spiritual and social and political turmoil. Peter is stirred up for truth. And Peter knows he's about to die. He knows he's getting older and that now his death would be soon. And it was. Paul's death was a quick one. Peter knows his death will be violent and slow. And it was. But that's not Peter's focus. Peter simply describes his death with a term that's used for taking off old clothes. That's it. Not thinking about the process of it. That's not at all even brought to our attention. He's laying aside his body. That's the term. Because Peter knew with Paul that when we die, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And that we're going to be with Jesus in a new, different, marvelous, astonishing way. When faith becomes sight. And notice that Peter refers to Jesus with the full majestic title, Our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the term. I love those words. For this man who, die, is gonna, who knows he's going to die soon, they reflect the possession of his personal relationship, our, the submission to the King, Lord, the worship of Jesus as God, Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ. I love those words. And Peter continues in verse 15, I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will, able, will be able to call these things to mind. Again, my departure. He uses the word here, exodus. That's the word. Peter says he's going to be diligent, and he's used that word in verse 5. I'm diligent, verse 10, diligent, verse 15, diligent. And, and in this context, the word is an educational term. Uh, some ascribe the definition overlearn to it. To overlearn, and I think that's accurate. To learn to the extent that you will never forget. To learn to the extent, this kind of overlearning that reaches so deeply into your soul so that when you cannot recall anything else, you do know this. And I'm going to be honest with you, this, would, this is my hope. Because when it's time for my exodus, my hope is that when I am dying and my body 
is racked with the results of organs beginning to shut down. And my mind is no longer working clearly that I would still have, either consciously or subconsciously, this one memory box in my brain that contains this truth, the truth of the gospel, which is the source of my hope and my joy for what is coming next. To me, Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's more of Christ. And of course, Peter would say, I want you to be able to recall these things to mind. And if you forget any of them, you can read this letter. (laughs) It'll help you recall to mind what I have just said to you. Interestingly, There's nothing maudlin about this from Peter, nothing morbid. He doesn't say, you know, I'm so scared, pray for me. That would be me. Peter doesn't uh, say, would you, you know, if, if you all don't mind, would you honor me with a plaque on the wall? Maybe build a basilica in Rome for me. None of those kinds of things. His focus is all on God's truth. And after Peter's death, if you need another reminder, just reread what he's just reading, uh, just writing. Now, Peter is not speaking theoretically. He has lived this. One more illustration of it that I think is pertinent. In Acts chapter 12, Herod had just killed James brother of John. Put him in jail, had him killed. Herod saw that it pleased the Jews. It was time for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That feast lasts seven days. Peter, uh, I'm sorry, Herod arrested Peter, put him in jail. Now, Peter knows he's going to die. I'm sorry, Peter knows that Herod's intention is that he's going to die. Peter's still a relatively young man. He doesn't fit in the category of what Jesus said was going to happen to him when you are old in the future. So Herod thinks Peter's going to die. Peter says, "Mm -mm." (laughs) mm-mm. And, you know, it's interesting that when the angel is sent by God to get Peter out of that jail cell, you know what Peter's doing? Sound asleep. In fact, the text says that the angel has to prod him. It, the angel enters the, the, the cell with a blinding light. That doesn't wake Peter up. He is sleep, sleeping so soundly and peacefully. That doesn't do it. The angel has to prod him to wake him up and then kind of drag him out of there before Peter comes to his senses and says, oh, okay. Because Peter knows that Jesus has told him He's not going to die then. And the interesting thing is, if if anybody wanted to raise Peter's stress level, when you read the text carefully, it's during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, seven days. It's at the very end of the feast. It's the last day. It's the last hour of the last day. Now, Peter is still confident that he's not dying now. Why? Because of what Jesus had said. Jesus' promises 
because God's word is true. So Peter knows that God has different plans for him. Well, similar plans, but not yet. Not now. And God, what God said was absolutely true. So now when Peter writes Second Peter, he's in his 60s. He's older, at least his 60s. But Peter's going to keep going at it until he's with Jesus. He's going to keep going until he enters Jesus' presence. What's in his mind is what we read in those earlier verses. Usefulness, fruitfulness. He wants to be useful and fruitful to the Lord. My dad lost his business when he was 65. And he, he had to retire. Retirement looked different because he lost a lot. of He lost. But he retired to close the business down over the next two or three years took. And uh, what he did was he spent the rest of his life ministering with the Gideons. And when he got too frail to do that, the Gideons would bring paperwork to his house for him to do. So he continued to do it. And he continued to do that until he could no longer do that. These men helped him continue to minister. When I think about that, I think about Peter's commitment to stay faithful to the end and to be engaged in usefulness and fruitfulness. Now, what about those who followed Peter? Did they do the same? Did they have the same life or death commitment to Jesus? Yes, they did. And you could read story after story in the first and second centuries of Christians who intentionally died for their faith. And I say intentionally because they were given the choice of whether or not to deny Jesus. And if they did, they wouldn't be killed. If they didn't, they would be executed, and they were. And that's the choice that they made. When you read in the, in the second and third century about Christians who gave their lives to serve others, you read about, uh, for example, a plague, an epidemic that happened. Everybody was running from the plague. The Christians ran to it, and they served people who were dying. And yes, they died too. Ignatius of Antioch was one of the early church fathers. He was alive, by the way, at the time of Peter's death. Ignatius himself died in 117 AD. He was, he was uh, put in the arena in Rome, tied, and was mauled by beasts. That's how he died. And he wrote this to the church that was being pressured to compromise or else abandon their worship of Jesus. He wrote this, quote, Study, therefore, to be established. <laughs> there you go again. Established in the doctrines of the Lord and the apostles. Study to be established in the doctrines of the Lord and the apostles. He continued, So that all things whatsoever you do, you may prosper, both in flesh and spirit, in faith and love, in the Son and in the Father and in the Spirit. Unquote. So what about us today? There's a sense in which we relearn the gospel daily. Jesus said, take up your cross daily and follow me. There's an urgency in this. And there's an urgency for those of us who, like Peter, have our exodus being more imminent than when we were younger. I want to point out three things to close. And I want to begin by taking First and Second Peter together for this first observation. 
Christians were going through hard times. We read about the persecution. We read about the hard times. We read about the ridicule and the suffering in 1 Peter. Look, their lives had not turned out the way that they had planned. Many were suffering for their faith in Christ. Peter doesn't let God off the hook. (laughs) He doesn't say, oh, well, no, no, that's not God's work. No, he makes it clear that their suffering was permitted by a loving God. And how they coped with their suffering was to be a part of their spiritual growth and a part of their testimony. A part of their growth and a part of their testimony. Suffering is a part of God's plan in this fallen world. It's the megaphone through which he speaks to an unbelieving world. Second, when Second Peter was written, the culture was blasting anti-Christian method, messages. And false teachers were beginning to emerge within the church. Oh, well, let's compromise on this truth. Or we don't, do we have to believe that truth literally? And that compromise was emerging more and more. What's interesting when you go through 2 Peter is Peter doesn't let false teachers off the hook either. In the spirit of our age today, Peter doesn't say, well, you know, let's just agree to disagree. You have your truth about Jesus and I have my truth. We each have our own truth. None of that. No, absolutely not. Truth is truth and it's worth dying for. If you're flying in an airplane, you wouldn't want your pilot to turn to the co-pilot and say, you know, I don't think those gauges are true for me today. If you have appendicitis, you wouldn't want the surgeon telling the surgical nurse, you have your interpretation of a burst appendix and I have mine. We each have our own truth. I have my truth. You have your truth. That's crazy. (laughs) That's crazy. God's truth is God's truth. Truth, capital T, the gospel is truth. So, what have I said so far in closing? First of all, Christians suffer as a part of God's plan, as a part of his megaphone to a hurting world. Secondly, the culture is denying the truth of the gospel. You have your truth and I have mine, but God has his truth. And third, and finally, in the midst of all this, Peter was closer to the end of his life than he was at the beginning. I remember thinking when I turned 45, you know, if I live a long time, I'm still halfway over, over. I'm halfway done. I'm on the other side of this. And if any of you are over 40, yeah. And that's given a long lifespan. <laughs> it goes faster than you think. That was, you know, kind of like three decades ago for me. So, what I'm getting at is this. We're all there. We're all headed there. We're not residents. We're pilgrims. If this world is your home, the closer you get to leaving it, the more alarmed you will be. If this world is your home, 
the closer you get to leaving it, the more alarmed you'll be. But if heaven is your home, the closer you get to leaving this world, the more anticipation you will feel because you will long to be home with Jesus. If someone's going to die and they know that they're going to die and stand before God, like Peter did, they want to speak truth, they want to hear truth. Peter did not say, well, we made all that stuff up about Jesus. Instead, look at what he says in the next three verses. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Verse 18, we ourselves heard this utterance. Verse 19, we have the prophetic word, more sure. So we, we saw it, we heard it, and we've got God's word to reinforce the truth of that. So remember these things. Why are they repeated? Because we're thick. And because the repetition of truth brings about the remembrance of truth, which seals that truth into that box in your brain, into our souls for growth now, so that you will be neither useless nor unfruitful for Jesus Christ. So remember, remember, remember. Lord, thank you for your word, for giving us these reminders. Thank you for your grace and your truth. Lord, I thank you that it is a solid foundation on which we stand. And Lord, we long for the day when faith will become sight. We ask, Lord, if there's anyone here who does not know you, anyone in the range of this message who has not received Jesus as their Savior, they would place their faith in him. Trust him. And come to you, Lord, with empty hands, saying, I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, who died for my sins on the cross. Lord, I pray that they would place their faith in him and him alone. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.